0: Dear listeners, this is a special program from our new history podcast, Pages from the Past. In its first season, hosts Adraja Roy Chowdhury and Damini Jaiman explore the stories of five princely states that were reluctant to join the Indian Union. Today, we are playing the first episode of the five-part series for you. You can listen to the other episodes of this season on indianexpress.com audio or download the Indian Express app where all the episodes are available for free. You'll find all the relevant links in the description. Now, on with the show.
2: I don't know about you, but I love period dramas. Like, I don't know, something about like the intrigue and the scandals and these larger-than-life characters. I'm so obsessed with it. Like, have you seen The Crown? Oh yes, it's one of my favorite, favorite period dramas. I'm so obsessed with The Crown. Like, I cannot stop watching The Crown. And it's also because, okay, I know some of the history but I also don't know all of the history so I have like a few like things I can like hook on to and then the rest I don't know
1: you know in fact it was while watching the crown that I got interested about the entire idea of royal history because what fascinated me was just how relevant the royal family in the UK continues to be people like literally worship them even today you'll see people lining up in front of the palace even now and it's really interesting the way they have managed to hold on to some kind of regal relevance and it made me wonder that, you know, India with its rich heritage and long history, and we have so many Maharajas, so many princes, it's intriguing why we don't have that kind of royal relevance anymore. You're listening
2: to Pages from the Past, Indian Express's brand new history podcast. In this first season, The Reluctant Princes, we trace five states that initially refused to join India in 1947. I'm Damini Jaman.
1: And I'm Adrija Roy part of the Indian Express Research Team. We think that all of India was under British rule before 1947. That, in fact, is not the case. There were like 500-odd states which were ruled directly by these Maharajas who were in a relationship of paramountcy with
2: the British. So, India as a subcontinent, it was sort of divided into already. There were parts of India that were directly under the British, and then there were parts of India that were princely states. Basically,
1: these rulers were sort of vassal states of the British, in which the British had control over certain aspects of administration, and the princes had larger control over the regions they were ruling over. Okay, so did they have like more cultural authority? Cultural authority, education, but the British managed foreign policy, defense. It was kind of, you know, as if the larger decisions were being taken by the British, but the rule essentially was being carried out by these Maharajas in the states. Okay, so
2: where are these princes and where
1: are these princely states now? They joined the Indian Union in 1947. Many of them did not want to, but largely most of them did join the Indian Union. And that was an entire process in itself. You know, like there was a commission set up by the Congress government headed by Sardar Vallabhbhai Patel, assisted by Mr. V.P. Menon, who went about cajoling these states that, you know, you have to become part of India. They gave them certain benefits. And of course, Pakistan, too, was interested in having some of these states. States joined them. Largely the states ended up joining India and much of that work of convincing these states was done by Sardar Patel and V.P. Menon and of course Mountbatten and Nehru too played a role. Once they joined the Indian Union, most of these states continue to exist but they are part of a democracy now. They exist and like we saw in the crown, the kind of relevance that the British royal family has, they don't have that kind of relevance anymore but some kind of local relevance is there. You'll see for instance in Travancore, the Travancore rule family is directly involved in the ritualistic aspect of taking care of the Padmanabha Swami temple. Or if you see the royal families in Rajasthan for that matter, in Jaipur, Jodhpur, you see a lot of these, the hotel and tourism industry is essentially boosted by these royal families, by the palaces that they later vacated, turned into museums or hotels, etc., So they continue to exist in some form, but they don't hold the kind of larger relevance that they did before 1947 or the kind of relevance that the British royal family continues to hold today.
2: Okay, so you mentioned some states like Travancore, like Jodhpur. Were all of these states happy to join India? Because why would you willingly give up all your royal titles and all your status and join a union? In fact, all of them were not And specifically,
1: five states stood out, you know, they really did not want to join India. They thought that this is a very good opportunity to have an autonomous state, to be independent rulers. Now they will not have to worry about the British either, you know, they can be free rulers in their own right. A couple of them also wanted to join Pakistan because they thought that that was a better deal. But that, of course, did not go down well with the Congress government in India, who thought that, you know, they are strategically important states for us. You know, five states, like I mentioned, Jodhpur. Travancore, Hyderabad, Junagar and Bhopal. These five were states who really weren't happy about joining the Indian Union, but eventually they did. The whole process of convincing them was not easy. Like in Hyderabad, for instance, there's an entire armed invasion that happens to finally bring the Nizam on board. Again, in Junagar also, it was almost heading towards the same direction. So yes, you know, it wasn't easy to convince all these states to become part of India and definitely these five were particularly crucial. But the fact that they were reluctant and they had to be convinced, cajoled, coaxed, also forcefully convinced in many ways. That is what makes the royal history of India so interesting. Okay, so Adhujar,
2: which state are we talking about first? So today we would be talking about Travancore. Okay, can you give me a rough idea of what Travancore was like before the British left India? The state traces its history
1: to the 18th century and at that time it occupied parts of what is today Kerala and Tamil Nadu as well. It was a maritime coastal state, very rich, the Diwan of Travancore. He would take pride in the fact that his state is just as good as Thailand and Belgium, you know, these kind of constitutional monarchies and the whole reason why Travancore did not want to join India in 1947 was because it was so rich that it knew that it can just survive all by itself. Okay, so before the British exited, it still came under the British? Yes, yes, yes. Despite being such a rich state, it needed the British. And there was a sort of symbiotic relationship that Travancore had with the British because at this moment, you know, they needed a, a strong ally to protect itself from the neighboring Mysore kingdom. And the British, they also needed a coastal kingdom like Travancore so that they could keep away the French. So basically, they both needed each other. And a Treaty of Paramount, he just helped over here. And I uh, reached out to historian Manu Pillai, who you know has recently written the book False Allies on the princely states. And he explained to me in detail as to why the British and the Travancore state both needed each other to protect themselves.
3: In Travancore's case, it had been established in its modern avatar by the mid-18th century by a Maharaja called Mahatandavatma. His successor who ruled for a very long time, from 1758 till 1798, this gentleman had to face off threats from Hyder Ali of Mysore and then eventually Tipu the Sultan of Mysore as well. So he had an incentive in cultivating the British because he needed strong allies and the British were very clearly, by the second half of the 18th century, becoming stronger and stronger. The British had an incentive in keeping the Travancore Maharaja on their side because it again goes back to what I was referring to, which is Travancore's geopolitical position. It was on the coast and the British were extremely paranoid about any coastal territory on that side of India becoming a platform for the French. The French are, of course, their enemies from Europe and their rivals, the French trading company in India were their commercial rivals for a long time in the 18th century. And they didn't want any powers in India to sort of flirt with the French. It was easy for the two sides to ally with each other. They had a lot of common interests and that's why they got into treaties with each other. The treaty was first fairly, let's say, fair, in 1795 when it was first signed. Then, of course, in the early 1800s, around 1805, there was a second treaty signed. That is what really made Travancore more subservient to the British. Even so, Travancore continued to have strong armed troops of itself, so it retained a certain political autonomy. But then... There was a Diwan of Travancore in 1809 who rebelled against the British, after which the Travancore army was also disbanded. And that is when Travancore essentially becomes something of a vassal state. Till then, it was seen very much as an important ally, as somebody the British had to keep on their side. And for the Travancore's government itself to survive, they needed the British also to back them up against bigger threats like Mysore uh, and so on.
1: So basically, Travancore and the British had some common interests in coming together. They signed two treaties, one in the 18th century and the other in the 19th century. It is a 19th century treaty that went on to make Travancore a vassal state of the British. However, they continued to have their own troops
2: while at the same time being a vassal state to the British. So we know a little bit more about the background of Travancore, but who was the last ruler when this period of accession was taking place?
1: So the last ruler was Chithira Thirunal Balaram Varma. Today in Kerala, he's given this demigod sort of a status. So Manupala he explains how in, you know, this sort of romanticization about the last ruler of Travancore. It's essentially a post-independence phenomenon. And during his time, he was more interested in the spiritual side of kingship. You know, he was more interested in the temples and the religious aspect of kingship. So the real administrative side was being taken care of by his mother and the prime minister, the Sir C.P. Ramaswamy, a
3: Chitra Zerenar Balrama Vatma was an interesting man. There's an entire set of people who, especially post-independence, and this is, again, the the interesting way in which royal memories get more and more romanticized over time. In his own time, he wasn't worshipped so much. He was seen very much as a talented ruler, but not uh, some kind of superhero. But post-independence, a certain nostalgia settled around his name with the result that if you go today to Srivandran, there's an entire section of royalists who will go so far as to say that he was Padmanabha, that he was Padmanabha Swami incarnated in human form and that he was some kind of a god on earth. There are others who call him a Rajarishi, this kind of ruler who's really a, a ruler saint rather than some kind of typical political figure. But the fact is that if you look at his political record, he ruled from 1931 November until the integration in 1949. He was very much a political creature. There were two important people in his life. One was his Devan, Sir C.P. Ramaswamy Haryar, and the other was his mother, the junior Maharani of Travancore, Setu Parvati Bai. And you see consistently records pointing to the fact that these were the people who were really driving the government. The Maharaja was very interested in temple affairs. He was very interested in the traditional side of kingship. He was very interested in the ritual and the spiritual side of kingship. But a lot of the actual administrative genius, a lot of the ideas, a lot of the innovations that were made in his reign, which ranged from the Temple Entry Proclamation of 1936 to setting up a chemical and and fertilizers factory in Travancore.
2: Okay, what is the Temple Entry Proclamation?
1: So basically, you know, the ruler, Balarama Varma, he was known for the reforms he had made. And one of them was this temple entry proclamation, which basically opened up temples to all castes and not just the upper caste Hindus.
3: On the one hand, it's been welcomed as a great reform in in Hindu society. But even as a political act, it was a very shrewd act because he was very deeply wedded to the idea of Travancore as a Hindu state. And when uh, lower caste Hindus, you know, in quotes, Uh, decided that they were going to convert away from Hinduism because of various caste-based disabilities, temple entry was a means to keep them in. It was a means to get rid of those more humiliating aspects of caste so that the Hindu character of Travancore was not affected because if you have a good 20% of your subjects suddenly leaving Hinduism and becoming Christians or, or Muslims or something, then obviously Travancore's Hindu identity would be diluted.
1: Uh, like Manupillai explains, that even this proclamation, even a social reform like this, essentially had political interests
2: as well, which goes on to show that the Maharaja was politically astute as well. Initially, you mentioned that the Devan compared Travancore to constitutional monarchies like Thailand, like Belgium. Was Travancore as economically powerful as these countries? Oh yes,
1: I mean they would. At that time, export rubber and chemicals to other parts of the world. And most importantly, Travancore was rich in this chemical called monazite, which goes on to play a very important role in its political history. Uh, what exactly is monazite? So basically, sometime in the 1930s and 40s, the world discovered that monazite can be refined to form thorium which is a radioactive element which can be used to produce nuclear energy so basically this was the time of the world wars and we realized that in Travancore we have a chemical compound that can be used to form nuclear energy which was huge at that moment
2: so literally while they're creating atomic bombs they have found a source of nuclear power in india itself
1: Absolutely. And also, it's important to remember that the Indian government, the Congress government in power at this moment, was also very much interested in producing nuclear energy in India of its own. So, the existence of Monazite and Travancore was very crucial to them. And hence, they really needed the state to be part of the Indian Union.
3: I think it was after the Second World War that this whole nuclear race begins, right? So, in that global context, it certainly was attractive to the British, it was certainly attractive to the West. Uh, In a a broader sense, the British had to balance this, you know, interest or this appetite or this possible sort of flirtation with Travancore just for one resource versus the larger issue of settling India and leaving some kind of, you know, political stability in India. So, between those two, the British establishment ended up following on the bigger picture uh, rather than succumbing to any kind of flirtations with Travancore on the question of politics.
1: And then, of course, you know, as Manupillai explains, there is a global race for nuclear energy as well at this time. And the British, too, are interested in the monazite reserves of Travancore. And there is a sort of a secret
2: treaty that develops between the Maharaja of Travancore and the British. So I can't imagine the Congress is happy that Travancore is making secret deals with a foreign power to give away nuclear resources.
1: Exactly. And uh, Nehru is clearly very unhappy about the secret deals between Travancore and the British. He was clearly furious and he was very wary about India losing out on these resources. So, you know, he ends up forming this joint commission to ensure that there is some sort of regulation when it comes to export of monocyte from Travancore to the British. So basically what what Manupala is saying is that the Congress government was also wary about the fact that a coastal kingdom as rich as Travancore, if left by itself, would be an idle space for foreign politics to interfere with India.
3: Just as the British back in the day feared that a coastal state might become a platform for the French or any kind of other foreign influence that may be antithetical to the British, post-colonial India also recognised that a coastal territory if allowed to remain independent on its own could become a means by which foreign forces could continue to impact uh, activities and, and politics and life in the Indian subcontinent as well.
2: Okay, so when it's finally announced that the British are exiting India and India is going to be divided into India and Pakistan... What is the fate of Travancore?
1: So here's where the Devan CP Ramaswamy Ayer. he is very much confident about the fact that he wants an autonomous Travancore. He, in fact, urges the bigger princely states to also find, you know, use this time as an opportunity to find its own political identity, sort of. So they are very clear that they will not join either India or Pakistan. And in fact, you know, as... We shall hear Manu Pillai explaining that he wants to get into these trade deals with Pakistan, which is basically, you know, signaling India that, okay, look, we are free, we are an autonomous unit, so we can have deals with whoever we want.
3: So, Siti had, for most part, been a champion of Travancore's autonomy, he was trying to coordinate with other princely states also to, to create some kind of a common strategy for the bigger states to retain their political identity. So, that was one element, and I think by sending off or, or putting up some kind of trade arrangement with Pakistan, he was signalling that oh, we are not going to bother with what India feels. We are an autonomous state. We are going to become an independent country once the British leave, and therefore I see no reason as Devan of Travancore not to have a diplomatic uh, engagements with Pakistan as well, which is also a successor state. So his attitude very much was that if the British are leaving, and India is going to be a successor state, Pakistan is going to be a successor state, and Travancore remains independent, Travancore is also a successor state. So Travancore must therefore form its own arrangements with both these governments. In fact, I would say much of this was performative. It was all Sir Siti flexing his muscles and trying to sort of use these things as a means to suggest or, or a means to signal that Travancore would not sign with the Indian Union.
1: So there was a lot of local opposition, you know, and also we need to remember that politics in Travancore right now was fairly fractured, as Manupala will explain. There were different kinds of political ideologies working together and most of them were against the Devan's decision to be autonomous. So there were student demonstrations, a lot of other kinds of political ideologies, particularly the communists who were against this decision to remain autonomous.
3: And in Travancore, there was a long history of local politics. It was originally based on communal lines between the Nayas, the Iriba community and the Syrian Christians and other Syrian Christian groups. That was there for a very long time and it continued till the 1930s. In the late 1930s, in coordination with the Congress Party in British India, and and looking at their strategies in British India, all of these political factions, in a sense, united, and they formed something called the Travancore State Congress, and started agitating against the Maharaja. What they essentially realized was that the Maharajas were playing their own game of divide and rule, which was to use each community against the other and maintain royal power, which is why by the 1930s they realized that actually, we unite, we can wrest more power from the Maharaja himself, and claim a more democratic system, a more representative system. And so there was a lot, there was a strong set of politicians within Travancore who were there anyway. Uh, Then, of course, the communist problem emerged by the late 1930s and early 40s into another serious threat.
1: And the Devan responded to this by sending in troops and basically, you know, trying to squash these political demonstrations because he wanted an autonomous state and he did not want anybody else to interfere with his decision.
2: So he was quite repressive of all the protests of people who wanted
1: to join the Indian Union? Oh yes, absolutely. But the fact that you know that so many people were in favor of joining India, that was quite promising for India as well, for the Congress government. So like I had mentioned, you know, that the job of convincing the states to become part of India was given to Sardar Vallabhai Patel and V.P. Menon, and of course Mountbatten was also involved. And there was this one particular meeting that Mountbatten had with the princely states in which the Devan of Travancore was also invited. He was obstinate about the fact that he will not join India. And one of the ways of expressing his rebellion was to not attend that meeting. And he decided on that day that he will attend this music concert. The events of that night seemingly altered the entire history of the Kingdom of Travancore. On his way to the concert, he was attacked by a member of the Kerala Socialist Party. In a letter to the King of Bhopal, another princely state that we will be talking about in a different episode, Sir C.P. described being stabbed with a butcher's knife multiple times. They tried to assassinate the Dewan? Yes! The anger in the kingdom had clearly overflowed at that point. The day after the assassination attempt of Sir C.P., the king signed the instrument of accession that brought Travancore into the Indian Union.
3: The popular story in Kerala goes that once there was an assassination attempt on his Vivan, the Maharaja sort of backed off and he realized that, you know, for all you know, somebody might next come after him. So, he did. So, wiser wisdom prevailed then and he decided to accede to the Indian Union.
2: So, after the accession of Travancore takes place, what happens to the royal family and all of its members? Clearly, one
1: would assume that given that the state was reluctant to become part of India in the first place, the family would find it very difficult to move on from there. All of a sudden, you have all your royal privileges being taken away, and they didn't even want to become part of India in the first place. So that must have been difficult. Manupila, he explained to me that uh, it's a matrilineal family, and there are two branches to it. One branch of the family, they moved on fairly easily. It was easy for them to become part of democratic India. But the other branch of the family, they wish to hold on to some sort of royal privileges. And that is how they continue to be the authority in place for the Padmanabha Swami temple. It's this kind of ritualistic relevance that they have continued to hold on to. So what is this temple that you mentioned? The Padmanabha Swami temple, it is a 16th century temple with gold and jewels worth about 90,000 crores as they say. And the Padmanabha Swami temple is, you know, it's clearly become sort of the symbol of the Travancore royal family. And as Manupillay he explains that this branch of the Travancore royal family will continue to hold on to some sort of royal relevance.
3: So the internal history of the royal family is that it's a matrilineal royal family. So succession is in the female line, and there are two branches based on the lineages of the two Maharani's of Travancore, who are sisters. So there's the senior Maharani who has two daughters, and then there's the junior Maharani who is the mother of the Maharaja as well as his sister and a brother. In 1949, as soon as the integration takes place, the senior Maharani's daughters. Uh, within three years, they're out, and within less than a decade, the maharani herself leaves. So, a woman who's actually ruled Travancore for seven years had been there in the 1920s as ruler. She ends up leaving Travancore, and that family moves to Bangalore and Madras. Where, if you go today, you'll find that their descendants are professionals. So, that family has sort of jailed and moved with the times in a, in a very interesting way, I would say.
1: I reached out to Rukmini Varma. she's a renowned painter and a descendant of the Senior Maharani of Travancore, to see what she has to say about the legacy and memory of the Travancore state. Mrs. Varma's grandmother was Senior Maharani Sethu Lakshmi Bai and this particular branch of the family are all the Senior Maharani's descendants. Mind you, even though Mrs. Varma belongs to this royal family, she prefers to not be addressed as Maharani or through any other royal title. She is very particular about the fact that she should be addressed just as Mrs. Verma. Now, I asked her uh, what were her first memories of being part of the royal family. And this is what she had to say.
4: It was not exactly a realization. We uh, we grew up with that uh, idea and it was quite a normal sort of state of affairs and never ever thought that there was anything other than that, you see, when we were children. From childhood we had the same, the way we were, we grew up in in the palace, in my grandmother's palace, Setalman Palace, and with all the servers and the enormous retinue of of people around all the time. This was the life that we always knew, but actually speaking, I learned something about our great ancestors. And at that time, I did have a new sort of an awakening that, you know, I belonged to a family where there were great ancestors. This was an, a very nice way of knowing that your family was had roots, very solid roots. Not so much as a sense of being royal, as you know, as from a family of great people who came before us.
1: So basically, as Mrs. Varma explains, you know, like the realization of being royal at that time was fairly gradual. Nobody really told her that explicitly. It's just something she grew up to know that she belongs to this very illustrious family who are ruling Travancore. And then I, of course, asked her more about her memories of the accession. And she said that, you know, like she sensed some sort of disturbances in the air, but was too young to understand exactly what is happening.
4: I was around seven, I think. That was the time. And um, I saw the adults were all grouping around radios trying to find out what was happening and all that. And there was sort of some kind of worry. I I could sense that. Only my grandmother remained calm and elegant and as uh, dignified as usual and never lost her poise. But uh, what exactly was happening, uh, we uh, as children did not quite realise until much later, you see, that there was a huge new world opening up, you know, it was something quite uh, different which we had never ever imagined at all.
1: I was also quite curious to know what might have been the process of moving out of a palace. You know, how did they react to it? Was it difficult or what kind of challenges did they face? And I was quite surprised to know from her that she found it to be quite exciting. You know, it was like a whole world of opportunities had opened itself up to her.
4: It was a totally different life altogether. So that was why it was exciting to begin with. And this happened around 19, uh, you know, 47. Around that time, when you know the accession was uh, announced and all of that, it was my parents who took the step. They were always a very uh, forward-looking couple, you see, and they were very young at that time. Even then, they wanted to uh, experience uh, a larger horizons, so, you know. Uh, a different uh, way of life altogether. We went to Kodai Canal first, and our first school was in Kodai and that was so exciting, it was so adventurous because we had never experienced anything like that. We all we had tutors and governesses and uh, all of them to teach us, and uh, this was an entirely new atmosphere with the children, lots of other children like us, and um, that was very extremely stimulating. And uh, then we went to uh, Kunor. After that, in 1949, that we came to Bangalore. And this house, we have been in this house for since 1949. So it makes it over 60 years, I think. I don't know, somewhere around that. (laughs) 70 years. Yes, it's 70 years now.
1: Mrs. Verma also told me how this entire transition from leading a royal life to that of a regular life was very exciting because moving out was opened up this you know, whole world of freedom which she really enjoyed and basically built her personality, allowed her to grow into the person that she went on to become.
4: This new life somehow seemed to be far more exciting uh, than the one we, we had in the palace because there was a, there was a big sense of freedom in this new way of living. Whereas in the palace, even though there was huge, uh, large uh, rooms, beautiful uh, places to play with and to play in and all of that, it was a sort of like a cage, a golden cage, you might say. And uh, there was no sense of, you know, of your own individuality coming through in a place like that. So I think my parents did a very good thing by, you know, going, coming over here because uh, in Bangalore, it was quite a different uh, uh, atmosphere altogether. And I think it helped us grow in a lot uh, more uh, uh, wonderful way than it would have been had we stuck to the palace there.
2: I mean, that's quite a wonderful perspective for her to have because I know it can be quite a shocking change for someone because I guess her whole life changed overnight with the accession. This whole story was so dramatic. The fact that one like Travancore is this huge kingdom with many natural resources. So technically, they had the raw materials to build atomic bombs and they had their own army and they had their own history and power. So obviously, it became sort of a battleground for many other foreign influences. So India wanted a piece of Travancore. The British wanted a piece of Travancore.
1: Yeah, and India did end up getting Travancore. And what I found fascinating about this particular state is that, you know, it was so rich that it could have easily been an independent state, you know. It it had every ingredient to be a country in its own right. And yet, you know, the way history turned out for this kingdom, the fact that there was an assassination attempt, the fact that people of Travancore, the different political ideologies, the different political groups willing to have an independent kingdom... These are ways in which history turned out for this particular state. But it's still fascinating to know that, you know, this is one state that could have easily been an independent kingdom. So we talked about Travancore. Which state are we heading to next? Next, we are headed to Hyderabad, easily one of the largest princely states with an accession history which is far more complicated than that of Travancore.
2: You are listening to Pages from the Past, The Reluctant Princes. This week's episode was edited by me, Dharmini German, and mixed by Suresh Pawar. If you like this show, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also recommend this show to someone you think will like it. Share it with a friend or someone in your family. It's the best way for people to get to know about us. You can also tweet us at Express Podcasts and write to us at podcasts at indianexpress.com.
0: You were listening to the first episode of a new history podcast, Pages from the Past. You can listen to this episode again for free on our website or download the Indian Express app where all the episodes are available. All relevant links are in the description.